0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to The Real Science Exchange, the special podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Tonight, we'll be chatting about biological rhythms, specifically how seasonal and even daily rhythms impact milk and milk component yield in dairy herds. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here at the Real Science Exchange tonight. The first person joining me here at the pub tonight is Dr. Kevin Harvartine from Penn State University. Kevin, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Now, I don't know if I remember if I told you or not, but I have uh, a son that's currently a freshman at at Penn State in the business school there. So I've recently had to be a bit of a, a Penn State fan. So... Also writing a lot of big checks to Penn State these days as well. So
1: I can see the business building from my office window, so ah. maybe can peek in on him.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, make sure he's staying out of trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Kevin, we were all intrigued by your presentation um, at the Real Science Lecture Series back in February, and we really couldn't wait to get to invite you back here to the pub so that we could have a chat and uh, dig a little deeper into seasonal rhythms. To give our listeners a flavor of what we'll be talking about tonight, um, you told us during the webinar that milk fat percent typically peaks in late December, early January. Why is that?
1: Yeah, so I guess from the, the biology perspective, um, we, we don't have the exact parts of that, that worked out. Uh, what we do know is, is a lot of animals have seasonal rhythms that really allow them to match um, what they're doing and what their body's doing with what the, the environment looks like, right? So we, we would kind of think about that normally, our cows would be calving in the springtime, and that's when we see highest, highest milk yield. Uh, that highest milk fat around January, well, what we're thinking is that's probably when the calf would be needing the most energy-dense milk to, to make it through that coldest part of the year. Uh, so there's a lot of things we can think about that match up to the environment. But I really wish we could point you to the gene and the exact, the exact mechanism
0: very well we'll get into what we can do to influence that in just a few minutes but before we do that would you please introduce the guest that you brought with you tonight here at the exchange
1: yeah so so dr isaac sulfer he he's the the guy who did the hard work on on the projects so i i get to do the the fun parts of uh starting to think about things and getting getting the student excited about it and then they take off and and run with it uh so so isaac i um, his main focus of his PhD in my lab was daily rhythms. And um, on the seasonal rhythm side, there, you know, there's, there was a number of us who had plots of this seasonal rhythm in uh, Diamond V for many years had had done a lot of work, uh, kind of plotting the change out across the year. And, And I remember saying to Isaac, you know, the same Procedures and statistics that we're using to analyze these daily rhythms, we could apply to these seasonal rhythms and, and you know, come up with a robust analysis. Um, and then he took off and, and ran, ran with it from from there. Uh, so then Isaac graduated. Uh, I lose track of time, so it is about two years ago, and uh, uh, went off to South Dakota State, and now he's at uh, University of Minnesota, getting his his own lab. Uh, rolling along.
0: Excellent. Uh, a couple things here. First, tell us what you're drinking tonight. And then the second, tell us a little bit, something maybe personal about Isaac, that maybe not everybody knows about him.
1: Oh, uh, so I'm, I'm drinking Riesling. Um, I, I should be drinking Yingling, right? Being, a in Pennsylvania, <laughs> the, the, uh, America's oldest brewery, right? Um, Something interesting, interesting about about Isaac. Uh, not not sure which direction to to, to go <laughs> on that. I I guess probably what what the connection a lot of people might know is is Isaac's father's actually uh, long history and extension at at uh, University of Minnesota and, and currently has a lot of interest in in uh, robotics. So there might be a few people that hear the name and are wondering if there's a connection there. So that that's connection for people to make
0: yeah i 've never met isaac 's father. I have talked to him on the phone a couple of times related to the Four States Nutrition Conference and some of the activities that we go have going on there so uh, Isaac, uh, congratulations on your position there at uh, University of Minnesota and, and all the work that you 've done there at Penn State. Tell us a little bit about your work there and also then. Well, i know the answer to this what's in your glass there's nothing in your glass but what would there be in your glass uh, or what will be in your glass later
2: yes yes well thank you yeah so so like dr harbert mentioned uh, a lot of my work while i was at penn state was looking at uh daily rhythms and, and trying to look at the relationship between the circadian system and metabolism and dairy cows and milk synthesis and that kind of thing and as you mentioned we do some of that work uh looking at seasonality in cows as well and so in my new position, I'm continuing to follow up a lot of that work um, because that's kind of my area of expertise. Uh, continuing to look at those relationships between circadian rhythms and metabolism, and particularly, I'm interested in looking at so stealing a little bit from Kevin, stealing a little bit from my dad, looking at automated feeding systems, automated milking systems, and can we do more applied aspects of these time-based feeding strategies on dairy farms? Um, I also do a little bit of work on the rumen fermentation side too. So. I'm beginning to do a little bit of work looking at microbial protein synthesis and are there novel feed ingredients that can help improve microbial protein production uh, in the rumen of cows too um, like you mentioned i'm not drinking anything uh right now uh, i have a virtual <laughs> drink i will be getting be drinking woodford reserve uh when it's delivered probably in two days or something like that the other thing i want to brag so kevin bragged about the yingling so i'm at minnesota and minnesota is actually home to the second oldest brewery in america <laughs> which is called Shell's brewery um so actually that's that's probably what I should be drinking if anything.
0: Well I kind of like your uh, your bourbon selection. I'm I'm a bourbon guy myself drinking a Four Roses small batch tonight. Oh. Uh, one of my uh, my standbys. Uh, I enjoy that. So I, uh, I should say I I tried
1: to get uh, Clay's cider but they they weren't able to ship it.
0: Yeah oh. I could get
2: beer delivered. Wow.
0: well speaking of clay and and cider uh clay's back at his usual spot at the table tonight and clay have you transitioned yet from the winter cider to the spring cider we getting ahead of ourselves there yet
3: we're a little ahead i'm having the usual tonight (laughs)
0: so all right very well well good to have you back again clay uh, speaking of seasons, uh, Kevin, let's start out with a quick explanation of, of what you see in your research on the seasonal impact on dairy cattle.
1: Yeah, so, so the most, most striking thing we see is, is on milk yield and in, in milk composition. Um, so, you know, it, it, like, like I mentioned, a lot of people have, have recognized this on the milk composition side because uh, it's really nice that the, the USDA milk market uh, reports a monthly average for for each milk market, right? Um, so so you can go to that database and you can download decades of of data and plot out milk milk fat and protein percent. so so we've always seen that. and uh, I, I remember some of my early conversations with with Chad Deckow, our dairy geneticist here at Penn state. I, I I have to to really recognize Chad's help on dealing with some of these large databases. But one of our early discussions on this, Chad, Chad talked about um, month or this season of the year as a nuisance variable. Uh, it, it, I, I think that's a funny, funny term to think about, because as geneticists, they're just trying to pull out that variation. And, and, and get rid of that variation so they can look at the genetic effects, right? But there, there's a lot of these nuisance variables that they've been modeling for quite a bit of time that I think would be really useful information for us on, on the, the management side. So, so the, the, the first thing you look at when you see, look at the data is, is that uh, fat and protein percent. So we see it's about a 0.2 unit difference in, in uh, fat between January and July. That's a little bit between, different between your regions. Uh, so uh, we see bigger difference in the northern regions of the U.S. than the southern regions of the U.S. That's kind of uh, to make a big general statement on that. Uh, we see that rhythm to uh, milk protein also milk protein percent. And then our big thing is we wanted to move beyond that that percent because you know I, we, we, we all still think in milk fat as percents. Uh, and I'm not gonna say that's not worth thinking about. There's some value to, to looking at the percent, but you're really getting paid for for pounds, right? So we wanted to look at, at the pounds, and that's where we moved into getting uh database from DRMS, the Dairy Records DHA database. And then we could see that there is a rhythm to milk yield, but it's actually a different timing. So rather than having peak be January 1, it's peaking um, March, February, March time period, uh, closer to that that, uh, spring equinox. And then when you look at fat and protein, you end up with, you have this peak in fat percent in January 1, peak milk yield out in March. So then you end up with peak fat yield somewhere somewhere in, in between. So what's really cool there is that from the biology standpoint, uh, we interpret that as being two different timekeepers. So you have to think of that in that cow's brain, there's, there's a couple cells somewhere in the brain that are flipping the calendar, right? And there's actually two different calendars being flipped. There's one of those that's being timed to being peaked January one that's driving our milk composition genes. And there's another calendar being flipped that's driving milk yield, and that's lining up closer to that, that spring, spring uh, equinox.
3: You know, I've been in the industry for 30 years now, and I remember getting calls about, about these drops in milk protein percentage back in the late 90s. Uh, people weren't even being paid for milk protein back then at least here in the U S but people started noticing these drops. I get these calls every spring back then yeah. the, the, the milk, milk fat percentage, you know, that's been recognized for a long time. I, I actually did my graduate work uh, many years ago looking at milk fat depression. Obviously there's a big seasonal component to that. So, so basically uh, let's start with the milk components first. So, so milk fat percent, milk protein percentages, what is what is the pattern that they actually follow seasonally? You
2: you want to jump in on that, Isaac? Yeah, sure. So, so fat and protein percent typically peak, uh, and it usually is right at the beginning of winter, right around the first of the year. So right between that December 21st, January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, is typically when you see the peak of both fat and protein percent and then it follows a really tight cosine function so that it peaks pretty much exact or it hits its minimum pretty much uh exactly six months later in july so in in june late june early july um so uh, yeah and it's very consistent in terms of following uh what we call a cosine function or that cosine curve um where you know it hits that midline of the peak in march april and then it hits its minimum uh in july and in june so
1: and so, so in mentioning there on, on milk fat depression, I, I, the one thing that I always try to, to, to really state in this discussion is that, you know, th- there's the heat stress component, right? And, and I know so, some people walk away from my presentations thinking that I'm, I'm saying that there's not an effect of heat stress, right? Um, and, I, and that's not what I'm saying. I think these are separate, separate deals. And and I think that heat stress really feeds into um, feeding behavior changes that really drive to to milk fat depression. Um, so I think we probably have a different instance of incidence in milk fat depression, also that probably layers on top of these these uh, rhythms.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good thing to emphasize because for both, well, and we'll talk about milk yield too, but for both milk yield and components, that seems to always be the pushback: is that people are accuse us, like you said, of never of saying that heat stress isn't a isn't a component, or we're we're trying to refute the idea that heat stress is one of the contributors to decreased milk yield and milk components. But we're, I guess, we're not saying that. We're trying to say that there's this additional effect because it. Part of the reason we say that is because it's extremely consistent across years. So you'll have, obviously, years that are much hotter. You have much hotter throughout the summer versus other years where it's a little bit more mild. But we see this effect that has basically the exact same magnitude across all years, regardless of what that uh, heat stress effect would be. So, so it's kind of these two things working at the same time.
3: So do you, do you tend to see some differences regionally on the milk component side, first of all?
2: Yes. Yep. So that's um, Kevin kind of mentioned that a little bit before, but we tend to see um, a greater amplitude in the Northern regions for components. So typically, and when we say amplitude, um, we have a difference between the midline and the peak of the rhythm or, or a height of the rhythm, basically the amount of extremeness. And so that tends to be greater in uh, the Northern regions for components. And actually for milk yield, it's the opposite where it's less for milk yield uh, and, and fat and protein yield in the North. Hope that's right, right? I don't have that opposite, do I? No. Yeah.
3: So what so why do you think that is?
2: Um also well, I think the big the big thing is differences in photo periods. So if you think about as you go further north, there's a bigger difference in the light or the change in the light dark cycle is different between um, the north and the south. So that's sort of our our idea, is that we have this, as Dr. Harvardine or as Kevin mentioned. So uh, we um, have these two separate calendar type mechanisms that are regulating uh, components versus yield. And with yield, what we think it is, is it's uh, driven by absolute photo period or absolute uh, amount of light and dark throughout the day. And so in the northern regions, you have, um, uh, you know, in the winter, you'll have shorter days and in the summer, you have longer days. And I think that's what's contributing. That's probably the major thing contributing to. Why you're seeing that bigger spike is because you have a more extreme difference in in day length between the the winter and the summer in the northern regions.
1: Yeah. So so if you think about the signals that the animals getting there, you have lengthening and shortening days across the year, right? So that that's one thing that can be tracked. That today is longer or shorter than yesterday. Um, it can also also keep track of how much longer and how much shorter is today and and i i probably should have appreciated that more before doing this but but that does change across the year and and i I, it always seems like you get caught off guard that all of a sudden it is getting you know the, the sun staying up so much later it it seems like it's changing more rapidly because it is right and then other times a year it, it seems like it's not changing very much because it, it's not and then the other thing is just that total amount so it, it, are we at a 12-12 or are we at you know that that 16-8 so so they're able to to through different mechanisms uh kind of sense those different different parts
0: speaking of north and south what do you guys see in the southern hemisphere <laughs> does it flip is it or is it the same
2: well, for the data that we have, so one of the challenges we have with this, we'd really like to get some really clean Southern hemisphere data. But one of the challenges we run into is that most of the production systems south of the equator are primarily grazing. So there has been some work done out in New Zealand um, that has shown that it's the opposite effect. So basically you'd have high fat and protein in, it would be there in winter, but it would be our equivalent to our summer. Um, but again, we are always a little bit hesitant of discussing that data with too much confidence because you have all of those herds are grazing. So you have the additional confounding effect of differences in the nutrient composition of the grass that they're grazing, which is also, uh, also changes across the year as well. But, but we do, but based on the limited evidence we have, it is the opposite pattern where, you know, again, in their, in their winter, which would be equivalent to our summer, they would have maximum milk component percentages as well.
1: (laughs) There, there's also there, there's a little bit of data from Europe, and um, that that kind of matches to the biology of what we're we're talking about. But the problem is that they're from grazing systems also. So you're you're really applying um, really big differences um, in in the feeding system. Now I guess what what we should recognize in our data is that that we're we're using real world field data. Um, and there's certainly some grazing herds within within that data uh but the assumption we've made is that by having such a large amount of data um and since we're so predominantly a non-grazing industry that that we can kind of um overwhelm that grazing impact with with all of our non-grazing herds and and i think that's a pretty good assumption but it it it's an assumption
2: right so when? So, so I, when the... I do have a student right now who's, who is from Kenya, he grew up in Kenya, uh, which, of course, is south of the equator. And so I'm having him work on trying to collect as much data because they apparently they do have more commercially intensive TMR fed herds in Kenya. And, and a, I mean, not a huge amount, but at least a, a few dozen that they could collect data from. So I am trying to have him work, work through his contacts within the industry there and hopefully collect some data from those farms so we can get some Southern Hemisphere data. But, but I think that's a challenge uh, as well, but, but we are trying to get that data as well as we can, so.
3: So when, when, when does milk yield peak seasonally in the Northern Hemisphere?
2: Uh, usually in about the, the beginning of spring, so usually the end of March, like March 30th. So what
3: about yields of milk components? what what pattern does that follow then
2: yields for milk components typically peaks in about february so usually in uh uh, middle of february february 15th february 20th something like that so about right in that equidistant between the peak of uh uh milk component percentages and milk yield
3: okay
1: yeah. And do you want to comment on that north versus south for yield difference? As well? Yeah. Yeah. So
2: so whereas we see uh, in the northern hemisphere, or northern part of the US, not the northern hemisphere, but the northern part of the US, we see component percentages peak, have a higher amplitude or have a greater distance from uh, winter to summer, or greater difference between winter and summer. We see the obvious opposite effect for yields. So we see less variation across the year. In the northern us and a greater variation in the southern us for milk yield and for milk component yields as well so and and in that respect milk component yields tend to track more closely with milk yield, understandably than they do with milk component percentages so i don't know
3: if either of you know the answer to this or not but i'm curious in um in in the dhia records there's a there's 150 day standardized milk Mm -hmm. That's calculated. That takes season into account. Is it, are, is this seasonality taken into account in that standardized milk number?
1: <laughs> that that is a, a really good question. I I don't know. I um, I'm sure that equation is probably accessible somewhere. Uh, I know some some parts of those that DHI correction are kind of buried buried be in it buried in those those systems um, for example I the amPM correction they also do because we have a lot of herds that that only sample one um, and and I I probably was not looking in the right place for it but I know a number of years ago I was trying to chase to see what they were using for that correction and and there was some old data back in like um, uh, i think it's really 70s where they developed some some predictions for that uh, but i'm not sure if that was still the prediction they were using or or what they were using now yeah
2: yeah i know the only thing i know about it i, I don't know a whole lot more other than actually my department head now at university of minnesota was one of the the researchers who contributed to revising those factors i think in the late 80s early 90s And so, and he actually does have some access to that data. So I do hope to to collaborate with him and work a little bit on looking at those, those numbers and how they compare to some of the values that we've got for seasonal adjustment factors too. But I can't say much more than what Dr. Kevin already said so we accidentally calling you Dr. Harveteen yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I know that's a hard habit to break yep yep yep. so now that we're both uh, faculty i should make sure to call you by your first name instead of faculty <laughs> students so does
3: seasonality have any impact on colostrum yield yeah
1: that's that's a really great question and you know i i hear from the field that there's a, a seasonal pattern to colostrum yield and, and I, I guess I don't, I don't know if it's bigger in jerseys or I just hear, uh, have heard it more directly from, from folks with jerseys. Um, but what I hear is that the, you have lowest colostrum in, in September, um, which lines up with our time of, of lowest milk yield. Um, so, so that kind of would, would make sense if our colostrum synthesis pathways are under similar regulation as our, our milk synthesis pathways. Um, you know, I, I, I probably should know more about colostrum, but I think as a whole, we don't know a lot about colostrum synthesis. You know, we focused a lot on measuring colostrum quality and, and managing colostrum, um, but from the basic biology standpoint, I, I, I don't think we really know a lot about the key regulatory points Better influencing, you know, making sure the cow's making good volume and good quality of of colostrum. Um, you know, I the 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 first solution there is just to buy more freezers and and save up colostrum <laughs> for that to make it through the low low part of the year. Um, but it just just seeing how strong and repeatable um, the seasonal regulation is for milk synthesis I would be highly surprised if there's not also seasonal regulation um, that's involved in on the colostrum side
3: yeah so it's, it so it's interesting so so the low point for milk yield is, is September
1: yeah yeah
3: so it's interesting that 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 lags the hottest time of the year yeah. so 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 why is that?
1: Yeah, you know, um, there there's a couple approaches we've gone to trying to say that that this seasonal rhythm is separate from heat stress. Uh, part of that is just just like you said, it the, our our lowest milk yield is not at peak heat. Um, uh, Isaac also did some modeling where he looked at average temperature and ran a model with temperature versus. Versus time of day of the year, month of the year, and, and of course those those variables are are related. Uh, but the model actually fit better with day of the year than with with temperature. Um, you know, just just how consistent it is from year to year and across the year. I think it follows more. You can't get anything more consistent than than our path around the sun and in our our day length changes, right? Um, so so we can't directly demonstrate. Uh, that in this real-world data, because we, we can't pull those confounding factors out. Um, but, but there's a number of things there that, that would say that what we're seeing in this rhythm is not heat stress, that heat stress is probably something something separate that goes on. The last part there is just to mention that when, when you put a cow in a heat chamber and, and you, you directly induce uh, heat stress Cows drop milk yield, but they actually increase milk fat percent. Um, so so what we see in our rhythms is not exactly um, what you would expect from from that induction. It's not the same what I would call the phenotype of heat stress, right um, but but the other thing to kind of just just throw out there that, um, let Isaac talk about this photorefractoriness concept, because what what really has confused us for the longest time um, is the the long day photo period effect on lactation, and I don't think we've we've talked about this yet. But you know, going back to there is actually a science paper from Alan Tucker and in, in I think the late seventies um, that showed that when you put cows under long day length, they produce more milk. Um, and you eliminated that through having constant light. Uh, and then that's repeated very well over, over, well, I guess the last experiments by Jeff Dahl probably were, were in late 90s, early 2000s type time period. Um, but, but that's not what we match to the, the, what we see in the real world, right? So if in, during the summer, we actually see lower milk yield, lower milk fat percent, lower milk protein percent. But that photoperiod data says if you put a calendar long days, you get more milk yield, five to 10 percent more milk yield, no change in composition. So you increase fat and protein yield. Uh, so I'll, I'll let Isaac comment on this, this photo Yeah, yeah.
2: So that's a good point. And I, before I we delve into this too much, I should clarify that we have not done any mechanistic research on this. So this anything we say about this is kind of speculative, speculative, speculative or it's based on what they've seen in other research from model organisms and stuff. But um, like Kevin mentioned, it's, it really stumped us for the longest time because we saw this sort of, you know, the, the controlled photo period data, we saw totally different, totally opposite results from what we saw in the real world. And doing a little bit of digging, I saw that in, in model organisms like several bird species. So I actually do this on purpose in, in poultry in order to uh, induce egg lay, but also in hamsters and a bunch of other species that there's this concept of photorefractoriness, which is if you put an animal in a constant photo period, so you remove them of that changing environment um, over a period of about a month or so, which is actually about the length they've seen in these photo photo period experiments in cows, after about three weeks or a month, they'll actually revert to the opposite phenotype of what you would expect to see in that environment if it were to occur naturally. So again, what we, what we see is if you mimic the summer uh, photo period for a long extended period of time, uh, what I think is happening is that they're reverting to the opposite effect, which would mean they'd be reser- reverting to that winter phenotype um, because of this concept of ro- photorefractoriness. And without getting into a lot of detail, again, saying that we've never done the mechanistic work ourselves in cows. In other species, basically, it has a concept to do with the timing of that circadian system and the way that the genes that regulate that calendar within the cell interact with each other, uh, they develop this somewhat spontaneous reversion, uh, after being in a, an unchanging environment for a particular amount of time. So that, that, that's what we think is going on, but again, we haven't tested it, but I think it really does line up with the data that we see in the, the comparison between that, photo period research uh, and, and our seasonal data.
3: So what, what hormones specifically are, are involved in these, in these seasonal responses?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. So in other species, what we see uh, some of the main players in terms of hormones, uh, melatonin is one of the major ones. So melatonin is involved both in, in circadian rhythms, it's probably the most important hormone uh, for circadian rhythms, and, but it's also involved in the seasonal effect too. Um, another one that's really interesting uh, that that we really need to do more work in, um, but we, we haven't really yet, is prolactin. So pr- prolactin follows a really strong uh, seasonal rhythm, and it really seems to be important prolactin expression in the brain as well as in other tissues of the body seem to be important for regulating the seasonal effect as well. And again, we haven't done this work in cows. We don't want to... Uh, You know, they have done photoperiod work and they have looked at at prolactin and it does increase when you put cows in a constant photoperiod and some of that earlier work that Jeff Dahl and and Alan Tucker did, Um, but we haven't, haven't done any yet, but that seems to be an important player based on some of those other experiments. Um, Yeah, those would be the two main ones that I would say.
0: Um, Has anybody done any work with melatonin supplementation?
2: We haven't yet. No, no.
0: We
1: we haven't. Uh, Alan Tucker and some of that early work. He he. Um, I believe he was feeding melatonin in uh, in some of those experiments. It's been been too many years since I've I've looked at, at those. But some of that early work he did, and I, I if I remember right, he actually could block the long day effect by feeding melatonin because you basically create melatonin the whole day, so you disrupt. Disrupt your your rhythm your rhythm of, of melatonin.
3: Hmm. So does does this seasonality does it affect reproduction in dairy cows? What how does that factor in?
1: Yeah, uh, so my understanding is that there's still a little bit of um, seasonality to reproductive fertility in dairy cows. Um, you, that we've bred a lot of that out of out of them. Uh, I guess I guess maybe you could say we've we've bred most of fertility out of our cows <laughs> and then are bringing it back, right? Um, uh, I I don't. I, I very quickly looked for some of that data recently, and in, in, couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. But but my understanding for from some people that work in that area is that there's still a little bit of seasonality there do you know any of that data? Is yeah, it- I was
2: going to say, so I know um, Albert DeVries down at Florida, I recently saw a paper that he published that they looked at just conception rate and saw a slight seasonal effect. It wasn't, again, not very extreme, but they saw a slight seasonal effect uh, in conception rate in cows. And then going back to early data um, back in, I think, 1985, there, there was an experiment by Pete Hansen, who was at Florida at the time, too, um, who who did see, see some slight seasonality in reproduction as well? I think that was conception rate too, if I remember right. But again, it's not very strong evidence. It's not something I don't think that we have a really, you know, big effect on. Kind of like Kevin said. So.
1: And and the one thing to mention is that we're we're modeling out days in milk in our in our DHIA and our cow cow data. So we we've modeled this at the milk market level, which which is actually interesting from statistics because it, it's not we're usually taking a subsample, right? That's not a subsample. It's all milk shipped in in those milk markets. Um, so we can't do it there, but but in our on our herd level and our cow level analysis, we're we're accounting for for days in milk. Uh, because, you could think of, think that if you if you have a change in fertility, that's going to create a a pattern of days in milk across your year. That's then going to drive um, drive some differences in production.
3: So, so maybe we'll shift to maybe over to nutrition here, and and how nutrition can interact with this. Yeah. So so one question that, that I get often related to the, the seasonality, particularly milk components, does the um so with our fermented forages, does the um as these forages ferment longer, does that play any role in this some of the seasonality we're seeing in components? Do you have any any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so so the way I've started thinking about this is that um that you know we, we have this biological rhythm but then there's also things that happen differently across the year and silage would be would be, be a good example of this and um what what i started thinking this is that there's probably things we can do that can make these rhythms worse in a way right uh so so i don't think that what we're seeing is being driven by corn silage changes But but it's true that corn silage is changing, especially in farms that that don't have carryover, very much carryover. That's a real deal there. Right. Um, So so I I. Kind of like to say, let's not make this worse uh, by by having those other other problems. So that goes with heat stress, right? So we can make this worse by having um, no corn silage carryover. We we can make make some of those things worse. Um, you know, the other thing there is that that if you start thinking about how can I do I do I go in and nutritionally try to eliminate the rhythm so that that I would have it be more constant across the year so you could think about maybe in the summer i should be trying to feed more digestible forages to get more acetate um, to to drive more milk fat maybe that maybe that would work but maybe that cow just doesn't have the physiological potential to make milk fat at that time i think we also want to think about when she has the capacity to make a lot of milk fat Let's not be shorting her, right? So if you think nutritionally, she's, she, if she has the capacity to make, on average, 0.2 units more um, milk fat in January 1, she needs more acetate. She needs more preformed fat. She needs more energy in general to make that milk January 1 than she did, did July 1. So we better make sure we're delivering that. Um, or we could kind of be cutting off that, that potential, right? So I think we have the concept of cutting off peak milk if we're not feeding for peak milk. And I think the same thing could be happening through the seasons. Um, same thing coming into the spring when you have peak milk yield. Um, if, if guys are getting a little bit upset that, well, my intakes are going high, I, and, and maybe they're not keeping up to that, and those cows are going without feed, for maybe it's six hours now when it used to be be one or two hours, right? And they just haven't figured that out. Now they have the potential that they're cutting off some of that 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 capacity to, to, to reach those higher milk yields, then. Um, yeah. But it, I I think the seasonal rhythm is biologically there, and then these other things can can make it worse.
3: Okay. So so Kevin you you mentioned maybe trying to minimize the seasonality but the 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 question that I've been asked is can we can we actually maintain a herd at at the high point
1: Yeah that that would be what would be our our ultimate goal um now speaking from the the basic biological literature um it's I, I think what would be kind of neat is that you, you probably could design a lighting scheme that would allow you to spend more time during the period where you have highest milk and milk component yield and then take them through what would be a summer, but you could actually move them through rather rapidly. So instead of it being like six minutes difference in day length from one day to the next, you can go to 30 minutes um, and you could actually move through that period faster and then get back to where that cow is is having highest components now you you wouldn't want to go much beyond 30 minutes because probably something 40 minutes a little bit more than that would actually start creating jet lag right um and and you know mo- if you've ever flown between time zones, uh, especially if you're you're flying to China or, or Europe, you realize that that's a big deal for your body, right? So we we would we would not want to be creating jet lag. That's actually an absence of the rhythm. Um, but a but that would be the ultimate is that if you had really good light control, that that you could keep them keep them in that high high potential longer the the other thing i think right now the recommendation i am really comfortable making is is managing for a long photo long day photo period just based on you know we have so many good experiments showing that that gets you more milk more fat and protein the key there is you need a dark period to get that
3: effect so, in your experience, do do you all run into a lot of herds that are implementing the uh, you know long day lighting or uh, or short days for the dry for the dry cows?
1: Yeah, I, I, Isaac might might have a better answer than I do. I, I have to say, I I interact with nutritionists and consultants a lot more than I do with with individual farms, uh, but I I really. Don't run into many places that are doing a good job controlling lighting. Um, I think we've kind of forgot about this the last few years, and there's been such an emphasis on maximizing parlor efficiency um, that that we're running 24 op- hour operations. Um, I, I did it, it, interact a little bit with with one uh, large dairy that that went through a period of time where they were um, trying to get the lights off and in um, except for the parlor. The parlor the lights were, were on and um, they, they did did that for a short period of time but then they ended it. And I I, I think it was more management related um, than 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 the biology related. I, do you know of any good examples,
2: Isaac? No, I was just going to echo what you said. I think I think there's a there's a, some farms I have ran into that try. So I, even a farm that I worked on when I was interning as an undergraduate tried to have a sixteen hour light, uh, eight hour dark cycle for their lactating cows. But I think the challenge is you there's just too many sources of light pollution if you're milking cows twenty four hours a day. Because uh, one of the challenges is, are with these with any of these photo period controls. Basically any any bright light exposure, anything above really low, and I wish I had a Lux value, but anything above a very, very low light kind of ruins it all. So unless they're in that 16 hour, uh, light period and have eight hours of true, true dark, uh, if, if they don't have that full eight hour period of actual darkness. Um, it kind of mitigates or it reduces that effect. So, yeah, I don't think, I think there's some farms that maybe try to set their lights on in their parlor for 16 hours of light, eight hours of dark or in their, in their freestyle barn, excuse me for eight hours, 16 hours, light, eight hours of dark but I think they still have a lot of other sources of light that they're not really doing a good job blocking. So I, I don't know of any herds that are really implementing it in a very serious way. So. So what,
3: what sorts of nutritional recommendations do you have to try to, I guess at this point to, to try to minimize the, 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 the seasonal variations that we see or, or, you know, take advantage.
1: Yeah. So, so my, my first recommendation is to to set your goals and change your goals across the year. Um, that that's the first one. And in in uh, I know that's that's not helping us solve the problem, but it it's getting us better at at identifying and analy- identifying problems and analyzing how good we're doing. Right. So so I know know for for years talking to nutritionists about this. I, I get a, a a lot of a lot of great feedback from nutritionists because they've lived this every year that they they they're getting hit over the head with a baseball bat all summer saying you're screwing up, I'm not getting good milk fat, right? Um it but but that that's what we should expect from that cow, right? So I really encourage everybody to sit down and set the goals across the year. That that if you if your goal is a four point two milk fat January one. The goal should be a four zero or a three nine five July one, right? And and I think you can fight yourself, and and I, I call it chasing ghosts, right? Um, a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy trying to fix problems during the summer that really is not not a problem. It's it's the normal expected expected change. Now there certainly are times during the summer when when you get milk fat depression. And now you need to solve that, right? But it, but I think we can be much more accurate in identifying when 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 we have that problem and when we don't. So set your goals and and make sure you're programming that that in. Um, I I I like the idea of trying to take advantage of when that cow can make peak milk fat and peak milk yield. So if I had better quality forages, I. I personally think I probably think would think about feeding those in the winter and the early spring when that cow has the potential to 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 make full use of those. Um, I I like control. I, I would try to do as good of a job in light control as I could. Again, that dark period and light pollution is a big 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 factor coming into play there. What what recommendations do you have, Isaac?
2: Yeah, that's, that's more or less exactly what I would say too. The other thing, the other way you can kind of look at it too, is that as you're going into winter, your cows should be increasing in milk fat too. That's sort of the other thing is that not only should you maybe give the nutritionist a break during the summer, you also should have higher expectations for those cows as they're going through fall and into winter too, um, that you should be seeing that bump in, in milk fat and milk protein percentages and things like that, but, but yeah, other than that, it's just such a challenge because we we don't know enough about the biology of the animal. And it's really hard to change. I mean, even humans in some ways are still uh, subject to seasonal seasonal changes in these seasonal rhythms. So some at some capacity, it's just very hard to, um, to do anything to really alter this biological rhythm. But, but like, I think I agree with what Kevin said that the best, best thing we can do now is understand it and, and use it to, to set goals that are that change across the year.
1: And, and Isaac brought up robotic dairies. Now, now that that throws in a whole other set of variables. Right. Um, but, I, but I think there's also some good opportunities there that we probably can um, do a better job on light control in those those situations, because because we're not we're not having people go in to do the milking.
3: So, so based on your research, is, it, is there if you if you could if you had a choice, is there a is there an ideal time of the year where you would calve have cows calve?
1: Yeah. So um, that that's a great question. I guess I haven't thought that all the way through. So so thinking so so to get the best advantage of your peak milk mm-hmm. yield. Um, I think I probably I haven't thought all this through. So, so just my first idea on this is that would probably be better if you were calving, say, late fall, because then your peak milk yield would line up with peak milk fat and protein percent, right? And, and quite often when you're at peak milk yield, you have lower fat and protein. And then if you think when you're coming down off your peaks, you're going into the spring, which which is a naturally high milk yield time. So so I think you would still get the advantage there that they're not they're not totally stale at that point. I I don't know that I would want to line up peak milk yield by days in milk with, with that peak yield in the spring, because you, you might be hitting you might be hitting I don't want to call it too high of peaks, but but they they might not be entirely additive at that point. I, I like I like to hear your guys' opinion on that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was I guess I was kind of thinking similar. I was I probably would have thought more towards pushing the the peak of milk towards the peak of the rhythm. But I, I think maybe your points on not added and not having an additive effect are are good ones as well. Um, but I was kind of thinking the same thing of having them calve, you know, if, if, as long as you're not going to have any issues with calves dying in the winter, having them calve kind of in that, you know, early winter type stage so that they are, as they're entering into lactation, they're getting close to peak milk, they're hitting those peak components, and then eventually hitting that peak of milk yield with the annual rhythm.
3: So, so related to that is there? Do you know? Is there any work looking You're at? You're not
1: going to give us your answer, Clay. When would you do yeah. it?
3: Oh, I, okay.
1: I can't let you get away without.
3: That's true. <laughs> so, so, so it's the opposite of what you would do in a grazing situation, right? Um yeah. So, I, I, um, I think your logic's pretty good on that. I, I, I would tend to agree. Um, with, uh, with with the answer you gave there. So uh, I'm curious as far as calf and heifer growth, are there are there seasonal patterns to that as well?
1: Yeah, great question. I, I don't know of any data there.
2: No, I haven't seen any data either. That would be an excellent thing to look at though. I think that would be really interesting if you could get that data to see. I would expect that there would be probably, but again, we don't know. Right, right.
1: Yeah, and, in, so, so kind of like a, just a little bit of a side here, just on on data, right? So I I'm more of a traditional nutritionist that you make your own data the hard way, going to the barn and enslaving away in the in lab. Um, and here we're kind of getting into a new area where we're we're going out and getting these large databases, and and I have to say, really benefiting from from that DRMS database and and. In um, th- those are great, great, really valuable resources. Um, so, it the heifer side, I, I don't know where to go to get a publicly available database. I'm sure some of the large heifer raisers probably have that data, right? Um, but I, I I don't know where that's publicly available. And, and I, it just just kind of a, a comment to make that. You know, the, as we go forward, big data is it, it really going to become a bigger part of what we do. And figuring out how to make that of data reasonably available to people. Um, I know it's a lot of work that somebody has data and to get it to the format to get somebody else to be able to use it is, is a lot of, lot of work. Um, but the more we can do to, to share and get access to it, even that that northern and southern hemisphere thing, I, a lot of that comes down to I, I don't know where to go to get that data in an easily accessible database. It's probably out there, but I, I, I don't know where to go, go to get it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Kevin, you're going to be presenting for us at the Real Science Lecture Series again. I think that's going to be in July, and it's going to be on the impact of daily rhythms. Can you kind of give us a sneak peek at uh, what the listeners are going to hear then?
1: Yeah, so, so our interest in daily rhythms really uh, it c- comes from, from two, two sides of this. So it's the daily pattern of intake, and uh, you know cows eat most of their feed, really about 80% of their feed within a 12-hour period. Um, and that really changes the, the rumen. So we, we think that we're feeding a TMR and every bite's the same, uh, but that difference in the rate of intake across the day uh, really changes – Rumen fermentation, and then that changes the pattern of n- nutrient absorption. That's what's feeding the mammary gland. Um, and then Isaac's other work's been on on this pattern of of milk synthesis in the mammary gland. That the mammary gland is changing what it's doing across the day, probably trying to both coordinate with to make use of the nutrients that are coming in, but then also providing the the type of milk and the composition of milk that the calf. Calf meats over the day.
0: Got some questions that came in from the audience uh, f- during your first uh, webinar that I'd kind of like to ask. I think this first one may have already been answered, but I'll ask it again. Brittany asks Can you mini- manipulate environment and diet to maintain the seasonal peak in fat and protein yields throughout the year? <sighs> Yeah. So
1: um, I think the potential's there. In, in, in and I'll mention again what Isaac said earlier, that, that we haven't experimentally gone in to try to demonstrate that. And, and I, I, I try to be careful of, about that. There's a lot of things that we can discuss as possible uh, outcomes, but we haven't experimentally been able to do those. And the other thing on individual farms, there's probably going to be a lot of interacting factors. So when you go in and start doing things. I think you want to make sure that 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 farm's responding in the way the way you would expect it. Um, so I I think that managing for long photo periods is a good a good recommendation and a good starting point. Um, I would make sure that I'm feeding cows to the milk that they're making and making making sure I'm changing changing my diet to keep up to those changes across the year. Um, then I think you can start playing with thinking, do I need to feed feed for more acetate, more to support that milk fat? I, I think it's logical to think about that, but we we don't have data to support one way or the other.
0: All right. We have a question that came in from Isaac. Now, I don't think this is the same Isaac, but maybe. maybe. <laughs> Isaac is asking, uh, what's the main factor related to fat variation? Uh, is it genetics, feed, management, farm site, et cetera?
1: Do you want
2: to try that Isaac? Uh, well, um, you're the fat guy, but yeah. I would say, uh, I think it's nutrition. Uh, this is fat percentage. Um, yeah. I would say the biggest thing is a likely nutrition, how you're feeding your cows, uh, the amount of digestible forages and things like that. Am I right? Kevin, is that yeah. correct? I'm biased. I'm a nutritionist. So I, yeah.
1: well, I, I, I think there's two ways to look at that. There's a sort of what's impacting the absolute amount she's making versus what's within my realm of possibilities to have an impact right So um, you know m- uh, you certainly can can decrease milk fat the most the, the variation from herd to herd that we see nutrition is a large part of that variation, right. Um, you know, the, the last couple of years what what's been kind of a bit of a switch in, in the direction in in my research program is we, we kind of have this this mission to to try to uh, quantify each of these components that's contributing to to milk fat yield. Um, so season is one of those, in and in w- I always have that categorized under these non-nutritional factors. Genetics is another. We've, we've done some playing with some genetics in, in the databases. We haven't published there yet, uh, but we see very little genetic variation between herds, uh, considerable genetic variation between cows within a herd, um, days in milk, parity, um, things like that would also also be be having an impact. Um, so so we're coming back to this idea of data. Um, you know, I, a lot of this data we have available to us, but we're we're not really utilizing it to the full potential. Um, so so we're hoping we're going in this direction that we'll be able to actually. Um, more accurately and precisely predict what a cow's milk fat should be based on each of these factors. So, so we know our genetic potential. We know what season it is, the year it is, and Isaac's quantified that effect, but we could, could get these different components. Um, but I, I would say just overall gen, g- genetics between cows, genetics is a, big, a b- pretty big factor. Uh, but nutrition trumps everything as far as you, if you want to poke something with the stick and change it, uh, nu- nutrition is that stick to change milk fat.
0: Very well. Uh, I've got another question came in from Alex. Do synchronized estrus programs affect the circadian rhythms in cows? Is it different between calf, uh, heifer calves and multiparous cows?
1: well wow. i'll give you that one isaac
2: yeah that's a tough one um the answer is uh we don't know um my speculation would be so differences between multiparous and prima paris cows in circadian rhythms uh we we don't know and we haven't looked at that um i would be surprised if there's a big difference in circadian rhythms uh, as far as seasonal rhythms we have looked at those as well and there is no difference. So we have actually looked at the seasonal refer- differences by parity, and there's no difference in the time of the peak of those rhythms. Um, as far as estrus synchronization protocols, that other part of the question and how that would impact circadian rhythms, again, we don't have any real data. Um, I can tell you that most of the hormones used in synchronization protocols are not, they're affected by circadian rhythms, but they're not known to affect circadian rhythms, if that makes sense. so. GNRH and um, uh, lutalys or prostaglandin uh, don't aren't really known within any model system that we're aware of to have any feedbacks back on the circadian clock, so we wouldn't see that they have any effect you know, regulating the overall circadian clock of the of the animal. Um, but uh, but they would serve, But you know, de novo or expression of um, those hormones by the animal itself are regulated by the circadian clock. So in some standpoint. Reproduction itself is circadian, you know, not as much as it would be in other species, but it is a little bit. You know. But again, we don't. I shouldn't shouldn't talk too much because we don't have a lot of data in cows on that. So, just one quick comment that that you're
1: probably taking out some of the seasonal variation in getting cows rebred, right? Yeah. Um, so so you're you're probably decreasing a swing in days and milk in the herd from 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 the seasonal side.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yep. yep.
0: Yeah. Great. Listen, I heard them just call last call. I don't know if you guys heard that or not, but they did. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna first start by asking Clay. Clay, is there any big issues that you you think we need to address that we haven't addressed yet?
3: Well, I want to tell you, I'm ready. For, I'm ready for last call. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I need another.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, I. You know, I think. I think this has been great. Um, Looking forward to, to your next webinar that you're going to do for us, Kevin, uh, on, on the daily rhythms. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that'll be a great follow-up to what we've, what we've talked about today.
0: Yeah. Okay. So guys, kind of closing this out, I'd like to maybe both of you answer this question, and then it's kind of the same question, but just kind of wrapping it all up together. What are three things a, a producer should do or three things a nutritionist should bring to the producer uh, to help them manage uh, rhythms in their herds and maximize output maybe we've already kind of answered that but just kind of put a bow on it for us
1: go ahead isaac
2: oh shoot (laughs) Are you Uh, what time to think think. we kind of uh, already mentioned but just (laughs) be aware of the seasonal pattern of both yield and the components know that they're different Uh, and know how they change across the year and let that kind of dictate your expectations. So, you know, again, you you should not necessarily expect fat yield to be the same or fat fat percentage to be the same in July as what you see in January. Just be aware of that. Um, as the year, year progresses, I think the other thing we've been mentioning a little bit, that's been a theme as much as you can do that photo period control. So we didn't talk about this much. Uh, but you can also do photoperiod control in dry cows. So, in dry cows, actually having 16 hours of darkness and eight hours of light um, has been shown to increase production in the subsequent lactation. Uh, but in lactating cows, having 16 hours of light, eight hours of dark, uh, has been shown to increase production uh, within the, the same lactation. Uh, so, those would be be two. I'll let you finish the last one or two, Kevin. <laughs> no, I. I...
1: I, I have the same number one again is, is, is let's just uh, change, make, set our goal for across the year. And, and I think that's the first big step uh, just so that we're not, not chasing ghosts and not, not losing potential. Cause I think a lot of times people think things are great in January when, when they probably could be doing a little bit better. Right. Um, I, I do think that it's worth uh, people thinking again about their lighting um you know I, I i know there's more of a hot topic back in in around 2000 um in back then there's a lot of discussions about getting enough light um things have changed a little bit now because we we have leds and a lot more options on the lighting side but it's not just getting enough light during the day and actually you don't need continuous light during the day you just just need that the start to the end is, is the important part, but then getting that dark period at, at, at night, um, you know, uh, when you look at that, that photo period response, um, five, 10% more milk that I, it's almost a BST response as far as almost that magnitude really consistent literature. And, and I think it's something that, that we're leaving on the table now, it's not free. Um, it's going to take some management to do that, but I think there's there's potential there. Um, for for nutritionists, I I think there's two parts. One, the education component to to be setting those goals and those expectations. Um, an education component to not make this worse, right? To to try to to make sure that we don't. Have green corn silage, and we're not shorting cows on feed when they're at peak milk yield. Um, you know, we're we're doing our heat stress abatement, but then I do think that we probably can start thinking about: can we nutritionally uh, tweak that diet in a small way so that that we're we're better matching that that seasonal rhythm? Hmm.
0: Perfect. Listen. This has been a treat. Uh, I've really enjoyed. Uh, you guys have been great guests. i uh, enjoyed getting to know both of you. I'd also like to thank our uh, our, our loyal listeners for coming once again and, and, and listening to us here at the Real Science Exchange. If you like what you've heard, please drop us a five-star rating on the way out. It, it really does help us reach uh, new listeners, uh, so we'd really appreciate it that. Also, hit the subscribe button, and uh, that'll make sure that you get future alerts. The other thing I'm going to do, I'm going to sweeten the pot. If if you'll leave us a review, take a screenshot of it, and send it along with uh, your address to anh.marketing at balchem.com. I'm going to send you a brand new Real Science Exchange t-shirt that we've just created. They're awesome. Just got mine last week. So you're going to want that. So again, screenshot your address to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Our scientific conversations continue on the Real Science Lecture Series of webinars. Visit balkimnh.com slash real science to see the upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.